Welcome to the Assembly at Heckfield Place podcast. I'm Lucy Hislop, curator of this eclectic programme of year-round events. A gentle Georgian home in Hampshire with 430 acres of woodland, lakes and gardens, Heckfield has always been a place to bring interesting and interested people together. Continuing this legacy, the Assembly calls on curious minds with a focus on looking forward and on our relationship with nature. Each episode features an edited conversation with our guests. As part of our Value of Good Month, we delve into the importance of good markets, of economics and being human. We join economists and authors Will Hutton, Principal of Hartford College, Oxford and co-founder of the Big Innovation Centre, and David McWilliams, co-founder of the Dorky Book Festival and adjunct professor of global economics at Trinity College Dublin, in conversation with BBC Radio 4 broadcaster Andrea Catherwood in working out how good society can be, and of course, Brexit. Well, good evening, everybody. Um, I have to say, there I don't know of a smarter screening room anywhere in Soho. Um, I wasn't expecting to find anything like this in Hampshire. Uh, it's a real pleasure to be here tonight. And to be here with two such titans of economics, I think it's fair to say. Um, they are uh, both incredibly nice people uh, and, uh, and also extremely interesting and very good at what they do. I, I probably don't... I, I'm sure you don't really need an introduction, but just very briefly, I think you, you all know Will Hutton. He's um, a very well-known author and a political economist. Um, he's also principal of uh, Hartford College in Oxford and uh, was formerly at The Observer. David McWilliams is uh, also uh, an author, a journalist, a broadcaster and uh, an economist. David's actually just flown back in from uh, Vermont where he was uh, speaking with Bernie Sanders and others uh, in, in, I think, what's called a big conversation. Is that right? A it's, big uh, it's the Sanders Institute, mm-hmm. uh, which is uh, what Bernie Sanders, after the uh, election, he was urged to set up an institute to sort of advocate what they call in the States progressive ideas. So it was really, really, really interesting. Very, very interesting. In a very divided country. It's extraordinary. And, you know, it's that great American combination of brains and a little bit of celebrity and TV. Another way they do it really well. But it's, it's an amazing place. I've never, I've never been to Vermont before. Uh, I am now apparently uh, a fellow of the Sanders Institute. That's what happens. You turn up at these things and then you go for a conversation, you get a job. You know, it's the end of the thing. So, uh, but it was, it was very interesting. And it's quite clear to me that he's going to uh, run again. I mean, it wasn't announced, mm-hmm. but I think he will run again. I think that was the general gist. And uh, I think it will be very interesting. I mean, if if, uh, if the Democrats don't come up with a centrist alternative, it could be a very interesting election. So it was, it was good. And there was all sorts of characters there. It was very interesting. Very interesting. Well, you know, I mean, we're, we're in a divided society uh, at the moment here in the UK, very much so. Um, we mentioned, uh, Will, uh, just before we came on, that you know we're, we're going to have to talk about Brexit. Uh, we're not going to talk about it right now, though. I'm sure we will get on to it. I wanted to start with something a little bit more positive, because, Will, you talk about the possibility, and I know that you've got a lot of caveats, but there is a possibility that here in the 21st century, with the innovation that we've got, that we can live 
as the woke say these days, our best life, that we have an opportunity to be really quite amazing in the, 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 the mid and latter half of the 21st century. Tell me about your, tell me about the, the most optimistic spin okay. that you have. Um, there are big qualifications. Um, we, which we'll come on to. Okay. General purpose technologies change the world. Uh, and people ask me what's the general purpose technology. Uh, I mean, the first general purpose technology was uh, the ability to cross-fertilize animals and then cross-fertilize seeds. And that allowed urbanization in 10,000 BC. Uh, other general purpose technologies include uh, the, the, the printing press, uh, uh, the steam engine, there were, and they've been, the, the big point is, is that there were um, just um, seven, eight of these general purpose technologies in the 20th century. There was the computer, there was the airplane, there was the internal combustion engine. And the reason why, I mean, these are technologies that start in a particular sector, like a railway or like uh, uh, an airplane, but they have such huge spillover effects, mm. they transform everything. And... Uh, they, we, we know that there, were, that there were eight or nine of them, uh, as I just said, in the 20th century. The expectation is, and just to put this in perspective, I mean, uh, since the Gutenberg invented the printing press, you know, that there's only been, uh, cumulatively, uh, about 16 or 17 of them. Uh, we expect that number in the next 70 or 80 years. Uh, and they're going to be in nanotechnologies, they're going to be... Uh, uh, yeah, a whole varieties of med techs, which the general Chan knows a lot about. Mm. Um, they're going to be in transport, they're going to be in nutrition, they're going to be uh, nuclear fusion, it's going to be, uh, and they will be transformative. And it is, it is these GPTs that actually are the origins of productivity growth. And the reason why living standards have increased by 40, more than 40 times since the Enlightenment. Now, I mean, the qualification is this, is the last time that so many of these were bunched together was between around 1870 and the, and the, and the 1930s. And they changed the whole kind of economic base. Um, they are fantastically dislocatory. Um, uh, um, and uh, it's no accident that that period in world history was one of you know, enormous rise of socialism, rise of communism, rise of fascism, kind of world wars. You have, in fact, they, create, they, they are the source of enormous instability. And what you require to manage your way through all this are actually, is a, a powerful international framework in which you collaborate rather than compete, uh, a kind of settled kind of view of what, of what good looked like and what the good life looks like. Um, uh, and we haven't got that. So whether we've got the institutions to manage our way through the opportunity that stands in front of us is the burning question of our times in my view. Will, that's a really interesting way to frame, I think, the rest of this debate. And David, to come into that, I'd like to ask you a little bit about the economist's role in this. I think ah. many, <laughs> many of us, I don't know, I think probably I'm guilty of this and maybe some other people in the room feel this way, that there are times when we see economists these days in a relatively narrow role. You know, we think of yeah, their absolutely. role at the Bank of England, we think of them forecasting GDP, and actually economists have a relatively so a small window in our world. And actually, that's really not, I mean, just listening to what Will has to say, you know, economists 
could be, should be perhaps a force for good. Maybe they should have a wider role in yeah, all no, of I, I, look, you know, I've actually done that GDP thing many years mm. ago in the Central Bank of I Ireland. It was a terribly dull job. It was awful. Those jobs you get that everyone says it's a great job when you leave college and then you realise it's an awful job. Mm. But it looks good on your CV. But I think that uh, economists have uh, to bear a lot of the responsibility for the pigeonholing of the science, the pursuit the inquiry, whatever you want to call it, they remind me uh, in general of uh, Catholic priests in the old days, in the medieval days, up until quite recently actually, Catholic priests said mass in Latin mm -hmm. in most countries. And basically their, their gig was that, listen to the congregation, you don't worry about everything, we have a direct line to your man, okay? And we're talking in Latin and we're getting, we're getting good signal for him and then we'll explain to you. In the way the sort of priests sort of bullied the congregation by suggesting that they had access to the information and it was unique to them which is how most religions do their thing, particularly centralized religions. And I think economists in the last part of, let's say the last 25 years, have adopted that sort of role of the expert's expert. And they have bullied uh, the people with their message. Now basically economics is about human beings, okay? That the thing about economics is that the economy is nothing more and the aggregation of every single decision we all take every day. Should I buy? Should I sell? Should I invest? Should I not? Should I go to work? Should I not? All those sort of things. You aggregate all those up, all those little decisions, and that is the economy. So unless you introduce an understanding of this weird little creature, the human being, into the game, then you begin to make massive mistakes. And when I was a kid learning economics, there was what I would call the tyranny of bad mathematicians, okay? Fellows who thought they were good at maths and then realized they weren't, and they got shunted into economics. And then in order to regard themselves as intelligent, they bullied other people with models, which we know have very, very little bearing on what they're supposed to be doing, which is why you get massive financial crashes. And surprise, surprise, I think it was the Queen of England can she say something like, why didn't you guys all predict this, mm. if you're so clever? So I do think that uh, economics at its basis is a social science. It's about human frailty. It's about the fact that we don't know our minds. That, uh, when I, get, I teach uh, in, in a university over in Dublin called Trinity College, and luckily I get the kids in fourth year. And so you have to kind of try and figure out all the bad stuff they've learned and try and explain to them that the way in which economics becomes relevant is if you can apply it to daily life. So what you have to take out, I believe, is a lot of the founding principles of economics because they're based on this notion that man is rational and that man is scientific, and woman I mean, okay? We, logical, scientific, mathematical, cold, calculating. Have you ever met a human being like that, Andrea? Would you go for a drink with someone like that? Right? <laughs> no, they don't exist. They don't exist. So, so don't if, exist. We're going to, if we're going to talk about ourselves, that this gathering as being representative of a micro side of the economy, you have to talk about yeah. psychology, biases, agendas. The seven deadly sins are a much more interesting place to start. <laughs> Once you get that, then you get the economy.
Yeah. So I was, I, was, I was actually just thinking about the DUP, but that's a question for another the day. DUP? <laughs> <laughs> no, that's well, a question. You're lying down with them, not us. We'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll, 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 we'll come on to Brexit and, uh, and the fact that uh, the, that the really... creationists are running well, the UK. Well, that is so much more about... Uh, so if it were simply about the economy, we wouldn't be yeah, where we yeah, are right yeah, now. Exactly. You know, that's, that's just what I was thinking about, actually. But, Will, talk to us then a little bit about kind of the core of, of what we're here to talk about today, about the value of good markets. I mean, the, the reason why we should really deeply care about economists having the values that David is talking about and being able to put those into practice and what good markets can do to our world. The, the market um, is the... Um, the market is uh, go through a souk, um, go through a street market, go to a, an agricultural fair, and you see it as a place where kind of willing buyers meeting willing sellers, and actually business is being done, and it kind of drives that activity forward. And, and uh, a better system for doing that hasn't been devised. But, and here's the point, building on what Dave was saying, there are economists um, who say, that is so amazing. That is so amazing to see that. But let's just see if we can abstract this into something which is um, kind of something very special. Let's, uh, let's assume that all these buyers in these markets have perfect knowledge, perfect foresight, um, that they're wholly rational, that they never make a mistake, they, they know their own minds. Um, and let's imagine that all the producers who are supplying them, uh, that there's no one with power, there's no one who's going to mit and manipulate the price. Uh, people aren't persuaded by advertising, uh, that they themselves um, never try and manipulate the prices. Uh, imagine a world like that, a perfectly competitive markets meeting rational uh, kind of human beings who know their preferences and, and know the future. And it'll all work fantastically. And then you can really apply some mathematics to that and uh, you can get these wonderful outcomes, um, like Patrick Minford does, who's a Brexiter. Um, one reason I'm so um, violently against uh, leaving the European Union, but we'll come back to it later. Um, actually, uh, we all know as, uh, uh, it's not like that. And there are three big things I put on the table um, why markets um, don't behave like that and which require um, some kind of uh, intervention. And it has to be a public intervention and it has to be a democratically kind of enabled public intervention. The first thing is, is that actually we don't know the future. We just don't know the future. And uh, even if the market behaved like um, uh, that the imaginary way I've just described, um, in the real world, and because you don't know the future, there are, there are panics and there are kind of enthusiasms. And those panics and enthusiasms always happen first and instantaneously in the financial markets. You can do it like that. But out here in the real world, it takes much longer. And so, even, if, even in that perfect world, because of time, uh, and you can't avoid time, we know that markets must behave imperfectly. Uh, that's the first thing to say. Um, the second thing to say is that uh, in my world of um, general purpose technologies and knowledge and science, you also know that actually um, no one institution uh, and no one entrepreneur can do it by herself or by institution by itself. Uh, the march of science, which, on which the great scientists build on what others have achieved, it's actually um, a public good. And you require, uh, you, you do require um, some kind of mechanism uh, 
to kind of sort that out. So you've got the fact of, you've got the fact of um, time and you've got the fact of if you want innovation, uh, it's, it's, there has to be somebody uh, who has uh, some way of collectively paying for it. And the last thing is, is um, there is power. There just is differential power uh, in, these, in these markets. And consequently, if you put those three things together, you have to have some kind of public authority which actually uh, have acts. And here's the big point. One of the reasons I'm, that I think, at least, that uh, the European Enlightenment is so important in this story is actually uh, it gave us the institutions and the way of thinking that permits you to answer that riddle. Uh, the great Enlightenment thinkers said, well, you know, we can have public authority, we can make it accountable, and actually democracy kind of is a, and publicly accountable institutions are ways in which we can actually um, provide public institutions uh, that will kind of do science for us. It will also provide us with a way of thinking about the world which, uh, in which we um, dare to know. It also means that we can think about kind of when there's this mismatch between the speed of things happening in financial markets and the speed of things happening in the real economy. We can actually develop an economics and institutions. We can develop central banks. We can develop monetary policy. We can develop fiscal policy. We can be proactive. We can actually try and actually deliver better outcomes. And it's one of the reasons why capitalism always go hand in hand with democracy. And it's why capitalism is always, when it's best done, some kind of blend of public and private. And the abstracted view that actually you get the state out of it, you get uh, regulation out of it, uh, you don't have to have taxation, because actually the real optimal world is this perfect world uh, that we know can't ever exist. Uh, that is actually a wrong turning. And actually, what I think has happened in Britain and America is that the American right and some on the British right have got it into the head that that's the way to go. And actually, leaving the European Union, uh, for example, would open up that vista. Uh, but actually, it's not a vista that can ever deliver in the real world. So you are, that's right. <laughs> this poor Brexit thing has done your head in. It's amazing. I've never seen you quite calm English people before. It's like you've had a collective nervous breakdown. It's yeah, we have, yeah, we have. That's the well, way we, we used we, to behave. I, I, I feel, I, I you've turned like, into us, you know, ridiculously like emotional <laughs> and losing the run of yourselves and fighting and roaring. David, tell me about, you actually have quite a positive view of the future and the ability, I mean, the, the ability of, it's capitalism. You're looking at a, de a democratic and capitalist society, but one that actually tackle some of those issues okay. like, like inequality um, and, and the challenges that the US and the UK and indeed Ireland and Europe face at the moment. Well, I wouldn't disagree with anything Will has said there at all. The only thing I'd add is that it strikes me as uh, somebody just who watches the world quite a bit that the most interesting economic machine on earth is this little thing between our ears, the human mind. Because out of the human mind, comes this extraordinary alchemy called innovation. Not invention, but innovation. And it's innovation that makes economics. And it's innovation that makes the economy grow. And the reason the economic growth is important is it gives you the resources to do the good stuff, okay, right? And I know this coming from Ireland, because for many years we didn't have the resources. So it was all great, we could talk about it, X, Y, and Z, but we had no money. So you need to actually figure out a way of how do you 
use human innovation to liberate that part of the human mind that wants to be what I would call commercially self-expressive. And I think commercial self-expression is up there with artistic self-expression as really part of the individual urge of people. And that's why I see artists and entrepreneurs as actually very, very similar type of people. In the sense that if you go back to school and you remember, like in, in, in our school, it was, in, it was like, like an all-boys school. But I remember the type of fellows who ended up being artists in Dublin and the type of fellows who ended up running their own shop, their own little business. And they were really similar. Mm. Like they didn't want a wage, they didn't want a boss, they didn't want an insurance policy, they wanted to express themselves. So then you go back and say, well, Therefore, the societies that begin to grow are those that dignify. And I use the word dignify properly, not just encourage, because encourage is one thing, or tolerate is one thing, but to offer dignity to this idea of commercial self-expression. And if you go back to the country where all this started, was Holland in the 17th century. Because in Holland in the 17th century, something unusual happened. The economy began to grow, and more interestingly, the fruits of that growth began to go to the average person, the merchant class. And the emergence of the Dutch merchants with their strange combination of Puritanism in terms of religion, but a separation of church and state was the beginning of the process of individual liberty. Then you get, as Will says, the Enlightenment and Britain takes up these, these and, and amplifies these sort of ideas. And all the while what's driving it is this rugged, individual that is expressing themselves commercially, that is creating something out of nothing. This is the great alchemy of economics, is that the people who create something out of nothing are the people that make the thing work. And why a lot of us in economics have got this rather bizarre attitude that economics is about like counting, it's kind of like the Bob the Builder approach to economics. Like we count factories and we count mm. 10 factories, 11 factories and a few bridges and a few buildings. We add them all together, that's GDP. That's not. The alchemy is what's happening in the human mind and the societies that offer dignity to that pursuit. And don't terrorize them. Don't overtax them. Don't humiliate them also. For, for example, for years and years and years, all over Europe, the intellectual left has humiliated the small business person. You know, even, even in our country, Yeats, our great uh, poet, one of the most uh, fated poems <laughs> he, he wrote was a, was a thing called I'm, September 1913. Yeah. But in it, he identifies the small this, businessman fumbly in the yeah, greasy till. And he identifies yeah. the small businessman as, this, as the class enemy mm, yeah. and the enemy of the state. And I was thinking when I was in school, of all the enemies Ireland have, and Jesus, we've loads of them, right? <laughs> you know, the, the dudes... Would you, make, would you leave the shopkeeper alone? Leave the shopkeeper greasy alone. Till, so, yeah. but so if you see there's an intellectual, you know, there's, 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 there's the intellectual left... Mm. Uh, journalists, mm. our profession, has, has always had a snooty attitude. <coughs> uh, the, what I would call this, the, this, this sort of the spiritual mm. side. You know, Jesus talking about mm. the eye of the needle mm. and the camel mm. and the rich man and all that mm. stuff. There has been a, a war, not so much a war, an agenda waged against these mm. odd creative little people all the time. So I think societies that honour the everyman struggler mm -hmm. who gets up in the morning because something in the back of his head or her head says today is going to be better than yesterday you know this this uh italian communist gramsci antonio gramsci he's a very interesting fella unfortunately he happened to be a communist at the time of mussolini it wasn't a good career move uh, and ended up dying in prison 
Um, but he said that life is this uh, constant struggle between the pessimism of the intellect and the optimism of the will. And I think that really sums it up. So intellectually, we're kind of programmed to be pessimistic, to be critical, to take people down. But interesting, there's another side of us that gets up this optimism of the world that drives us forward all the time. And I think that's the balance in society, is that you have to dignify the optimism of the will, while at the same time being able to analyse what Will would have called the, the caveats. So when I look at, for example, England, uh, when England was, you know, at its creative best, which is a long time ago now, right? What was actually driving it was these really odd little characters who were creative. I mean, I look at that fella in Ireland, Michael O'Leary, you know, the fella from Ryanair. Um, and I've always been intrigued about how Michael O'Leary created the biggest airline in Europe in a country that you can fly over in 20 minutes, right? Which has no military. We have absolutely no military. We have no military aircraft. We've never built an engine in our lives. We've never built an airplane in our lives. So a country like Ireland had no right to imagine in 1990 that it would have the biggest airline in Europe based out of there. But O'Leary's innovation was nothing to do with airlines. It was to do with pricing and costs and all these other things. So I come back to that is as long as you dignify the weirdo who pursues this notion of the creative act, which is setting up a company or commercial self-expression, then everything else follows from that. I, not, yeah. I sound a bit like Mrs. May at parts there. I was amazed, David. I mean, um, uh, I, don't, I, I mean, if we go back to the early f foundations of a company, um, uh, you mentioned Holland in the it was kind of 1580s, 1590s, it all began. I mean, when um, you incorporated, uh, you had to declare your purpose. And uh, the first companies that incorporated in England in 1600, and the uh, East India Company, it too had to declare its purpose. And actually right up until kind of the end of the 19th century, kind of uh, capitalism in these first two, three centuries, you know, it, it was a bit uh, more than just uh, you know, every man commercial kind of um, self-expression. I mean, uh, and you get this today, actually. I mean, you get this, I mean, uh, we've got a lot of startups these days in Oxford. There's a lot of creativity going on around our major universities. And actually you get the similar thing. Kind of people actually incorporate to do something great, uh, usually with a kind of moral dimension, uh, or always with a moral dimension. They're, they're out there for human betterment. Yeah. Um, and the, I mean, the great companies, uh, um, and I would argue that's true, I mean, now in, in contemporary capitalism, the great companies are ones which have a very strong sense of purpose. But Will, I mean, if you look yeah. at something like Google, right, you know, it yeah. started off very much as you're talking about as this innovative company that was there to do no evil. And yet an awful lot of people today um, question very much what, not only what Google's doing, but the very fact that it's not paying taxes and putting back that money into society. And actually that, that rampant globalisation is one of the reasons that a lot of Brexiteers would give for being the situation we're in today. That's a big question. I mean, there's some true. I mean, I. Um, what? Well, I go with that one. I mean, I. Um, I think. I mean, I. Uh, look, I, Google. I mean, I mean, everyone, everyone in the room can give their speech about Google. Mm. Um, except, I would say this. Um, uh, I couldn't. I mean, I've just, I spent. I spent this morning writing. I'm um, doing a, a review for the BBC on pay transparency. I wrote. A, I wrote a chapter on. Um, 
unconscious bias. And without Google, I couldn't have done it in three and a half, well, sure. I couldn't have laid the foundations <laughs> at the time. You know, I mean, and you know, these digital platforms are, you know, do provide a fantastic benefit. But the idea uh, that you uh, begin with a moral power. Yeah, is this shareholder value? This, if you actually, I want to identify a moment, it seems to me, where capitalism as we know it, which has enriched Britain, it's enriched Ireland, it's done, as, as Will said, it's done amazing things, you know, since the Enlightenment to improve people's living standards. It strikes me within my lifetime, if you can identify a moment where a very, very narrow gauge notion of success uh, became the mantra. And I, you know, years ago I worked in the city in one, two of the big investment banks and uh, I was always intrigued by lots of things there. But one of the things I was intrigued by is the way in which investment analysts identified successful companies. And uh, what strikes me is that if you decide that maximizing shareholder value is the be all and end all, I think you go down a road of profound moral and financial corruption. Well, it, but, well, and I think I, that's a, that's a, that's, I, I just think that's one of the big dilemmas. I'm not sure, well, if you agree with me, but I think it's, once you decide that returning dividends to not so much the owners, because they're only renters of the companies. These are not owners. They own it for a while and they go, and so they're just renters. Uh, I think then you begin to change the conversation and you, it leads to extraordinary excesses. You put on top of that financialization and yeah. you get what yeah. Will was talking earlier on about this enthusiasm in the financial markets for booms and busts, that destabilizes things. It also gives people on the outside a terrible sense of isolation and dislocation. And then there's this weird thing called democracy, right? The thing about democracy is that for the society we're talking about here, which is characterized by inequality, the rich man always gets a place at the table and the poor man doesn't. And then this bizarre thing called democracy, for one day, in one minute, every four or five years, the rich man and the poor man are equal. The rich man doesn't like this, okay? Poor man likes this. And if we have a society or a system where excessive returns go to a smaller and smaller number of people, you will get the democratic pushback, I, I, which I, I think happened to you here in Brexit, or something, something like this happened in Brexit. Yeah, well, thank you. Well, well to, to, I mean, to build on what David has just said, I, I, you know, I do think that, a, that you know, um, a great capitalism in a good market, and to come back to the you know, mm -hmm. subject of the talk, mm. um, is, a, is about having companies which are highly purposed, and from pursuing their purpose, they set out to make money. Um, and when you meet a group of young entrepreneurs uh, setting up a company in biotech or whatever it might be, they're not there to try to you know, make billions. Well, they're there actually to try to make the world better uh, because they think they've got some fantastic idea and they're going to, uh, which they want to commercialize. Uh, and that's the kind of, that's their thought process. And that is what a great capitalism is about. But, I mean, David's right. I mean, what's happened is, is, that, is that we've moved from a kind of a capitalism in which you know, that was front and foremost, in which they're underpinned by the Protestant ethic and all the rest, to a capitalism in which uh, it's about value extraction in the name of maximizing, of keeping the shepherds as high as possible, um, financial engineering, cutting corners, um, and all the biases in the system are, are to kind of value extract and not value create. And so capitalism has got itself in a, in a real kind of moral bind. It's distrusted. And by the way, um, as 
it has in, the, in Britain. I mean, it's become a feature of, it works kind of, it works after a fashion in London and the Southeast, and it kind of works in Manchester, uh, Bristol, Leeds, but it does not work in our smaller towns. It does not work in our coastal regions, and actually they are uh, really left behind. So, Will, let's talk a little bit about you. you you've written, I know, a lot about stakeholder capitalism and how we can yeah, actually mantra, make this yeah. better. Exactly. But, but it's, let's, a, it's a good mantra. It's, it's a good <laughs> mantra. It's a, it's a great, and, and funnily enough, actually, Beats take back it, control. It, it, feels like, <laughs> it feels like perhaps it's the time to review it, actually, because, you know, I think we've, you know, we perhaps coming up uh, to the to the crash and obviously during the crash and the, and the beginnings of austerity, um, it, it wasn't focused on and perhaps we are at a point now where we should be coming back to look at the, the foundations of your ideas about stakeholder capitalism and what we can do to, 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 to swing that balance that you're talking about from situations where companies are all about what happens to sh what happens to the shareholder, and a little bit more about what we can do to make these companies and to make capitalism work better for all of our society. Well, I think it's a very interesting moment in time because mm. I think that there's a uh, this point about purpose. Uh, I mean, I, I co-chair a little group of companies. Which, it's it's they're great companies. It's called the Purposeful Company Task Force, and there's about a dozen companies who are committed to the notion that actually purpose should come first. And actually trying to work out, you know, how you think about purpose and how you uh, kind of deliver it in reality is quite is quite a burning issue actually. And then what is the ecosystem that supports it? What kind of banks do you have? What kind of owners of enterprise do you need? What should your training system look like, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera. I notice with interest that Macron has just pushed through a change to the civil code in uh, uh, France. And every company in France now is required to incorporate declaring their raison d'etre, their purpose. And you know, you talk about uh, um, the Democrats and uh, Bernie Saunders. Uh, Elizabeth Warren has got a, has got a kind of accountable capitalism act, which is very, very similar, kind of saying that every company incorporated in the states has got to kind of have a purpose and be held to account. And you know, the, this is beginning to be. Instead, the South Africans have done the same thing, actually. Uh, and it's kind of, and I, Mrs. May talks this language. Uh, so there's a, so I mean, uh, so I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful, but not really daring to believe it, that actually. Uh, Stakeholder capitalism, we need to get some purchase you, on public You might have thought, though, that yeah. it would have been Tony Blair and, indeed, then Gordon Brown who would have taken this on. I think one of the reasons, this is very broad brush here, but without, one of the reasons they didn't do it was perhaps the idea that they were, they were considered anti-business. They were. They That's did. what I mean. I, was, uh, you you know, know, I, mean I, you were, you, I know you were very close to them at the time. Yeah, well... Huh. But is that the, the reason they didn't do it was because it's, it's even, for a, even for a Labour government with a giant majority, not a... You know, a, 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 Tory government in the middle of a nervous breakdown, um, they still weren't able to push this through because it was considered anti-business. Well, actually, they were frit. I mean, so you, mm -hmm. I mean, they were. I mean, they, they, they when they started in '97, they think they they launched a thing called the Company Law Review, yeah. which was actually to introduce the kind of legal reforms that would that would lead to stakeholder capitalism. And they backed down, and they backed down something rotten. And what was left is Section 172 of the 2006 Companies Act, where you get a shadow of it. There's a shadow of it there, which actually, interestingly enough. Uh, the May government is thinking to breathing new life into. And just, just like in July um, of this year, July of this year, the, um, the Financial Reporting Council produced the new Corporate Governance Code, making a reference to Section 172 and saying it had to be beefed up uh, and requiring companies to kind of be, be careful of their purpose, declare it, report on it, 
Um, and I thought, I mean, I, I, mean, I thought myself, how extraordinary, you know, it's taken Mrs. May and Greg Clark uh, uh, and the Financial Reporting Council to kind of do something which actually, you know, um, Gordon Brown and Tony Blair wouldn't go near. Um, and uh, I mean, they, they, were, um, they were terrified that this would be seen as kind of, in inverted commas, anti-business. But I mean, I think business itself now is phenomenally concerned about the kind of trust gap. Mm -hmm. It's phenomenally concerned about, you know, I mean, if you're going to do business, you do need actually legitimacy. And actually, you know, you can then get to the whole Brexit argument. I mean, most British businesses would, do not want us to leave the European Union, but actually the dysfunctionality of British capitalism and the left-behind parts of Britain that resulted from it were, were proximate cause we had the vote. So let's, let's, let's do Brexit. We've only got about 15 minutes because I do want to take some questions from the audience as well. So if you have a question, you will have a chance to ask it. To what extent, in your view, did the, did the inequality, did these dysfunctional companies create the situation that we've got today? Here's some facts and figures for you. Seven out of the 10 poorest regions in Northern Europe are in England. Life expectancy between 2014 and 2016 declined for the first time in over a century in the East and West Midlands, the Northeast and Northwest, and Yorkshire and Humberside. There are 100 local authority areas where house prices between 2006 and 2016 did not go up or fell. 94 of them voted Brexit. The Social Mobility uh, Commission established 30 kind of um, local authority areas where social mobility was disastrous. They, he called them, so Melbourne called them social mobility curl spots, places like Mansfield or Wigan or Stoke. Every single one voted Brexit. You can map the growth in sales of DIY dental kits where you self-administer the anaesthetic and then give yourself the filling. Uh, these are, the sales of these are now running at more than a quarter million a year. Uh, I used to get them in pound shop for a quid, actually, before pound shop went into receivership. But anyway, uh, the, the, the fact that the national dental system has collapsed, mm -hmm. I had my biggest argument, actually, with someone in, in Oxford saying they're going to vote Brexit because you couldn't get any free dentistry in Oxford. Uh, you can plot the growth of DIY dental kit sales with the Brexit vote, the intensity of the Brexit mm -hmm. vote. Um, in one last figure for you all to ponder, Blackpool voted 67% um, um, to leave. Uh, for every thousand adults in Blackpool, 331 are on antidepressants. They live what GPs call shit life syndrome. Uh, they're just depressed, there's no prospects, it's all. And between 2010 and 2016, per capita spending, social spending in Blackpool, fell by 914 pounds a head. Now, uh, you know, when Jacob Rees-Mogg and Boris Johnson and co tell me that, uh, or tell the British public, that the Brexit vote was a vote to take back control, uh, that they wanted Global Britain 4.0 and all the rest, you know, I mean, that was not what they were thinking about in Stoke and Blackpool and Wigan. It, 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 I, I absolutely take all of those points and they're extremely powerful ones. When take back control, when that mantra, you know, a lot of the best mantras, um, a bit like 
Oasis Wonderwall. Uh, it's a word that, you know, it's, it's a phrase that we don't really know what it means. It means something different to everybody. Mm -hmm. So take back control of, is, is a phrase that meant something and it could mean something to all of those people living in the north, living in coastal towns um, where they felt that maybe they could take back control of the fact that they have got no dental care. You know, it was a phrase that could mean whatever it, whatever it was meant to mean. And it, it clearly worked because the, it didn't, what, what I think probably when we look at what the ERG are saying at the moment, they're not saying we're going to take back control and make this a fantastic economy straight away. They're saying that doesn't matter because what really matters is that we have got control of our own borders. How much do you think that was part of all of oh, this. Immigration, the, was the, the immigration was a huge part. I mean, Theresa May's calculation at the moment is that immigration was the core. It was huge. I mean, 17 of 23 front pages of the Daily Mail uh, in the run-up to the, in the, in the 23 days before um, June the 23rd had immigration as the splash. Yeah. Um, there was a succession, not just of double-page spreads, but, you know, six, eight, ten pages on Boston in Lincoln, where um, the bulk of the kind of working population is immigrant from Eastern Europe, kind of working in the fields around Boston. Boston is coming to you, was the message from the um, play. You know, uh, you, you may think you're prosperous, but you're, you know, this, act, this, is, this is the future. Um, and the, work, the workplaces where kind of immigration really was bidding down wages and putting strain on kind of local housing, local schools and local hospitals, but it wasn't the widespread phenomena. And Farage was, in my view, a, um, uh, he's a warped and malevolent, but nonetheless political genius, because he managed to tell the Brits um, essentially a power-like message about immigration without toppling over into racism. Mm -hmm. And he, he self-acknowledged that, uh, that in a couple of interviews. Mm -hmm. And we almost, all of us must remember um, the, uh, the 1967 Immigration Act, you know, because this was uh, kind of just before um, the, um, the Powerlight kind of speeches, um, there was a big wave of immigration, and, and this, this went through the House of Commons in four days to deny Commonwealth citizens um, British passports because of the sense of, and, and Callaghan, when, when he introduced the Act, talked about being flooded um, by immigrants. And actually it was so successful that immigration kind of ceased to be a hot potato in British politics, right up until the fateful decision that um, Blair took in 2004 to let everybody in from Eastern Europe very quickly. And we had these kind of very high levels of immigration from the EU, which actually were only matched by those from, from, from non-EU countries. It wasn't, and many of them were students, and are, many of them are, are, go back, but nonetheless, the headline figures were big, um, and the local hotspots were very hot, and there was no narrative um, to kind of explain it. And this is the last point I want to make, is that when you actually put in a focus group of UKIP voters and you say to them, uh, um, uh, we Brits shape our immigrants. Immigrants don't shape the British. Um, they, their anti-immigrant sentiment in the face of that bold and aggressive statement, which actually they get, it halves. You know, we really didn't, uh, we allowed the, the kind of liberal establishment in Britain didn't uh, ever take on this question seriously, never tried to management, and, and never recognised our own past about, about where we were. And Farage saw the opening and he went for it. And here's the point, lastly, when 
David Cameron gave his Bloomberg speech in January 2013, announcing a referendum. For Tory voters, Europe was not even in the top 10 issues facing the country. And it was Farage binding immigration to the anti-EU cause that actually was one of the principal reasons that we are where we are. Alongside all the rest of things, I don't know. David, I mean, it's, uh, yeah, David, it's, it's interesting to look at this from uh, from an outsider. As you said, we I think we are we are having a collective nervous breakdown here in the UK. Um, it's obviously it's 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 key to Ireland, but yeah. also as a, as a European looking at this from the outside, what is your take on where <laughs> where where the UK is? I think at it's, the moment? it's always very dangerous to come to a foreign country and give your opinion of that country. So let's be a little bit uh, cautious here. Um, but uh, from, from the Irish perspective, uh, Brexit has done a number of things. Uh, one of which is, you know, mansplaining, when a man explains feminism to a woman. Uh, we in Ireland, after Brexit, have to deal with what we call in Ireland Britsplaining, mm -hmm. when a Brit explains Irish and Irish politics to Irish people. And that's what we've had so, you know, uh, Boris Johnson and all these characters. <laughs> coming in and telling us what we should do. You should leave the EU like we, we do. leave the EU, bloody, bloody, bloody. <laughs> um, so the first thing on, on immigration is quite interesting because only three countries in Europe opened their borders in 2003, Ireland, Britain, and Sweden. Uh, Ireland has a higher percentage of foreign-born citizens than Britain does. It's 18% of our population. Uh, if immigrants come into a country and that country is growing quite quickly, uh, and if the social safety net is more generous, which in the case of Ireland it's profoundly more generous uh, than, than the UK, uh, what you tend to have is a little bit more social cohesion. So we haven't had this backlash against immigration at all. In fact, Irish people will tell you very, very willingly, for starting with our taxi drivers, that if it wasn't for immigration, uh, the country wouldn't be uh, half as at ease with itself. Mm -hmm. Second thing, if your population has a collective history of emigration, of migration, which yeah. we have, yeah. uh, and it's very much part of our national mm -hmm. narrative, we tend to understand the... You tend to be hardwired a little bit more for empathy, I think. Uh, and as a consequence of that, those type of anti-immigrant sentiments, which are very real, and I think for a lot of particularly working-class people, you know, middle-class people, upper-middle-class people have a very different... Rep relationship with immigrants than working class people because for working class people immigrants are competitors. Are taking their jobs rather than they, working in their workplaces. Yeah, but in the health service, in their schools, all those things. Um, so, but again, I'd be very, very aware that, you know, me pontificating about England, because I think it is an English thing, Brexit. Um, mm. I, I, the only thing I'll tell you is uh, when I was a kid, England was for us in Ireland, for us as teenagers, the Mecca. When we were children, we used to, if our cousins lived in England, we used to ask them to come home and bring home English sweets, right? Because English sweets were better than Irish sweets. You could get opal fruits and Twixes and curly whirlies and stuff were banned in Ireland, right? <laughs> we had a very jihadist approach to the economy in the 70s. But our sense was that we looked up to England, forget everything about Northern Ireland, the average Dublin citizen. Also understood England really well because we you had British television. That was know, the other major thing. We know everything thing. about yeah. you and you know nothing about yeah, us. Exactly. That's the deal. Okay. Well, look, you know, if you think and about it, football, popular culture, everything. music, it was all... Language, was the whole thing. At England, and, and, yeah. and, and we looked to England as... In fact, in, in Ireland there used to be a terrible phrase, but it was very prevalent in the 70s, 80s and even 90s, 
which was called an Irish version of, right? Mm -hmm, yes. So you'd have Westlife or an Irish version of Take That, right? The Boomtarrants or an Irish version of the Sex Pistols, you know, right? So, so, but, uh, but also for us, England was a, a place for economic opportunity and hope. All of my mates came to England when we were left school to work for the summer. All of us came here throughout our university years. England was a refuge for Irish girls who needed abortions, for Irish people who needed jobs. It was really the place we came. And, and it was also a very wealthy country for us. And, and we really, I remember being really struck by this, that English people looked richer than us and they kind of, they almost smelt richer. And this is when we were kids. And then my son is now 16 and last year, uh, his local football team, uh, he's a bit like his dad. He's probably going to be a better commentator than a player. Uh, he's on the fourth team on the under-16s Cabin TD boys, right? And uh, the team is uh, from a working-class area of Dublin because they tend to have much more kids, right? And our kid would be like a middle-class kid on this working-class team. But they would be regarded as quite poor, this part of Dublin. And they went on a football trip last year, and I went with them, some of the dads went with them, to Birmingham. Ah, oh, wow, yeah. But this is really interesting because Birmingham used to be the home, Birmingham was the home of, for example, it was a source of employment for hundreds of thousands of Irish migrants in the 50s and 60s. And the kids went, and these are not rich kids, right? Their dads are not professors of economics, right? These are working class kids, a lot of them from single parent homes, all that stuff. They were really shocked by the poverty of the place we were in Birmingham and the kids and the houses. And I remember they went into, it was really interesting, what, it's really interesting what children observe, teenage boys, it's, it's amazing what goes on their heads. Uh, they went into a supermarket, uh, the name escapes me, it was a very low rent place. Mm. And they came out and they said, you should see the stuff those people eat. Now think about it, these are kids. So something has happened in Britain since I was a child, where Britain was rich and tolerant and a place of hope for us, to where my kid is a teenager and those parts of England are really, really poor. And they're much poorer than anything you'll see in Ireland, like much, much poorer. Those five so, regions that I mentioned all have per capita incomes and includes East Midlands which are lower than Mississippi and lower than large parts of Romania. So this is the inequality though, isn't it? Yeah. This, is, this is the issue this is, we're this talking is, about. This is, this is the issue, mm -hmm. is that uh, England seems to me to have badly mismanaged its economic resources over the last 15 or 20 years. Brexit might be the least of your worries in terms of what actually that does psychologically. And that experience of those teenage Irish boys in Birmingham was really quite instructive because they were actually quite scared. And these are not, these are not, you know, little, uh, let's say, home counties uh, boys. These are these, they can look after themselves. Actually, you were in the middle actually of an area where I mean, the, Sketchford, Stetchford, would that be right? Sketchford, Stetford, where the Peaky Blinders were from. These are my cultural references. Right? <laughs> uh, I love that room, nobody, room, it's very room, instructive yeah. that no one in the room has a clue but where that is. But David, is that Sketchford, is that a, Sketchford, is it? Sketchford, yeah, so it's a suburb of Birmingham. Okay. And I'll I, take anyway, it back. So my, my, my point is, for us, it is quite, you asked about the Irish view. Irish people are very perplexed by what's going on in England. There's a classic example. Because we thought we knew you, and we don't. 
But you were talking earlier, just talking about these. I mean, GKN was the, is was is Britain's third biggest engineering company, or was. And I mean, earlier this year, it was taken out by Melrose, who are a firm of you know. I mean, again, private equity effort. Asset strippers, yeah. Well, they're, they're not private equity; they are quoted actually. But I mean, the the, the it was a stunning exercise because uh, actually the long-term shareholders and the ones who I would call anchor shareholders or block shareholders who really believed in GKN's purpose, kind of were prepared to back it. But um, a fifth of the equity changed hands as Melrose bid, and these guys, the um, hedge funds kind of voted actually for Melrose to take out GKN. And I mean, GKN will be broken up, and one of the last pillars yeah. of, that, of that East Midlands economy will be you know, taken out. Uh, it's, it's, uh, and actually, the remuneration of the, of the people running Melrose, you know, the three directors all pay themselves more than 100 million pounds each. Uh, yeah, yeah, wow. yeah. Well, I mean, you know, they, we watched recently yeah. the director of Bet Three Six Five paying herself two hundred twenty-five million last year. I mean, these are these are, I mean, these are gargantuan numbers, but, but, but my, and uh, they're beyond the deep. I my, mean, my point is that, it, like, so if, I don't know if Brexit's going to happen, if it's going to happen, if it's not going to happen, but irrespective of whether it happens or not, irrespective of whether Britain is back in the European Union in fifteen years' time or not. Uh, Something has gone badly wrong in the way the economy is set up here. And uh, the levels of inequality, we really feel them when we tr travel here. And it's not just between, like, you know, Kensington and this mm. place in Birmingham. We feel, you know, we feel it. And I think that the UK, if it survives, and that's not really guaranteed at all, you know, by the way, you can keep Northern Ireland. Right? <laughs> We're not taking it back, okay? Just so you know, right? Just so, even if they want to take it back. But uh, my sense is that what, what Will is doing, that, what, what Will doesn't realise is that uh, when the state we in came out in the mid-90s, I was living in London, and I devoured the book because it was such an exciting read, and it was such a change, and it was so dramatically... It seemed to me so dramatically sensible. And, uh, and all the ideas therein and the stakeholder capitalism, etc. Um, and it seemed to me that the UK was very much under the Blair government's, the, the first one, going to take yeah. a step in the right direction. Mm. When, when I see Irish kids marvelling at the poverty of English kids, something is wrong here. Before we go to questions, I just want to ask you one question, Will, about this idea of change, OK? Because I think that you know, you've made the case very powerfully for inequality, uh, for the fact that we have such inequality, and, and you know, there are a lot of ideas as well as to what you can do with it. Part of the issue, and this is on to practical terms here, mm. the electoral system that we have at the moment... Majoritarian, yeah. Yeah, so, so we're, we're in a situation yeah. where actually, yeah. because yeah. of the first-past-the-post system, we've only got a couple of um, constituencies, a number of constituencies that need to change hands there, to, to change the government. Therefore, we know that actually not very many people make a difference. Mm. And that because we don't have a situation where everybody has to vote, there isn't compulsory voting, both parties, all the parties know that older people are much more likely to vote. Oh, yeah. And so is it not, I mean, you talked about the difficulties that you had persuading uh, Tony Blair and later Gordon Brown to, adapt, to adopt some of these principles. Under the current system, is it always going to be really difficult to get anything more progressive through when every political party knows who they have to target in an election? Good question. Look, I'm... I'm uh, uh, 
First of all, just to uh, put it on the table, I, mean, I really do believe in the power of ideas. I think that uh, and I think it's ideas that move the world, and it's kind of innovation that drives growth and wealth. I mean, I, that's my kind of, I really, you know, two things I believe in, but and then no qualification. Um, the question is, you know, how do you create a political system which actually captures more of that rather than less um, and doesn't get in the way of it? And uh, there's, I mean, British majoritarian politics uh, has kind of, it, it kind of worked for a long time, but the last 40 years, it's, it's become, I mean, we now have a situation, in my view, and there'll be, I, we'll open it up to questions in a second, but in my view, um, you know, both the major political parties relying on first past the post have themselves become profoundly dysfunctional. It is astonishing that, I mean, uh, um, that people like Jacob Rees-Mogg with his set of views, mm -hmm. could have the influence he has in the Conservative Party. It is extraordinary. Party. It is yeah. extraordinary. And he doesn't, really, he doesn't really represent mainstream and, conservatism yeah, yeah. at all. Mm -hmm. And people like him you know, can't sit in the same party as what's it, Sam Jiminar, who, who um, resigned today. And, and, and they may, not, the they there, may you know? not be but, sitting for very but, much yeah, longer. No, and then on the Labour side, you know, you've got the other side, which is that you know, it's been captured by Corbyn and a clique around him. Um, and, you know... That coalition is as fragile. Uh, so ultimately, kind of majoritarian politics in which you know a coterie around whoever captures the leadership of X party, the Tory party or the Labour party, and then gets in control and drives things along around their prejudices, um, has actually become deeply dysfunctional. It hasn't created an ecosystem in supportive of purposeful capitalism. It hasn't actually been mindful of what's been going on in our own country. The social contract has become profoundly warped. Um, and, you know, you even get a situation where, you know, it starts to kind of challenge the rule of law. Because, you know, you, you, the, these majoritarians think they, that, that judges are the enemy of the people. I mean, uh, you know, it's, it's, and it couldn't be more serious in my view. Can I just say one thing that's very striking as an outsider is that uh, what I find very absent when I watch BBC, you know, and, and, and I come over here and read the paper, is compromise. Britain seems to have forgotten how to compromise, how to do deals, that all the talk is about winners and losers yeah, sure. and my view and we're going to stuff it to them and we won 52% of the vote and consequently <coughs> we can do whatever we want. But basically... You know, the, everybody, sometimes when I come to Britain, I always feel this sense of everything's black or white. You're either one or the other. And compromising is what is beautiful about humanity, what is sophisticated about us, what actually allows us, billions of us, to live in this bizarre little planet. And somewhere along the line recently, maybe it's majoritarianism. I mean, we find it amazing <coughs> that you have a first-past-the-foot system. Irish people, we find it, because we've got a very weird PR system, because it's very, very clear that if you lose the ability to compromise, and if everything's about winners and losers, if you make a significant strategic mistake, it takes decades to unravel that. On yeah. that note of agreement, yeah. we're going to leave it there. Yeah. Thank you all very much. Thank both of you, David and Will. It was an absolute pleasure uh, to, to listen to you. Um, and I can tell by the, the, the quiet in the audience, you'd have heard a pin drop, that everybody was wrapped with that. So thank you very much indeed for being such an attentive audience as well. And enjoy the rest of your evening. Thank you. That was an episode of the Assembly at Heckfield Place podcast. 
You can find out more about the Assembly by visiting the Heckfield Place website and you can join the conversation on social media by searching for at Heckfield underscore place and the hashtag Heckfield Place. Thanks for listening. <laughs>